0: Shapira. with me as always
1: hello i'm sean edry i was a cage fighter the best in the biz 400 fights and not a single loss
0: this podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Seekword.org for all your needs for comic books news reviews and
1: critique buy their books read their articles watch their movies and remember we're on patreon as well support smart criticism in comics
0: and also if you want to support Seekword and you don't just want to give away money you want to get stuff You can also go via our page to Amazon.com via Sequart, and then if you buy stuff from there, even if it's not Sequart stuff, we'll get, uh, you know, a few pennies on the dollar. So you can do that if you want to
1: support us. Gotta love the holidays. Mm -hmm. Although, as it turns out, the holidays are not so much a productive time for news and interesting tidbits, because not a lot has been going on.
0: I'm happy. Quiet news when it comes to comics usually means not a lot of crap has
1: been happening. Speaking of crap, let's talk about the Riverdale trailer. Oh my god. It's a very...
0: Okay, so the trailer for Riverdale, which in case you don't know, is the Archie live-action TV show from The CW came up. And it is very much a CW
1: show, right? They made a point, Tom. They made sure to get a shot of Archie lifting his shirt up so we know he's ripped. This is a CW show. What was that thing? Vampire Diaries, Vampire Academy, Vampire something. It was exactly the Vampire Diaries. To the letter. There's no sun in Riverdale, apparently.
0: Maybe the owl vampires. Maybe it's Afterlife with Archie and just nobody told us.
1: See, if it was Afterlife with Archie, then at the very least this show would have some kind of hook or appeal to people. Because I'm looking at this trailer and I saw nothing. They didn't cast anyone particularly memorable it's mostly Disney refugees, right? The hook there is, like, Archie's having an affair with his teacher? Ugh! That's a very
0: strange way to do it. It brings to mind, I don't know if you remember Criminal, the Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips series. Sure. And the storyline, I think, like, four years back now, which was sort of a deconstruction of Archie comics within the universe of Criminal, where the guy's, like, going back to his hometown and... All the old gags are suddenly a lot creepier and weirder, so maybe they're aiming for that.
1: Well, see, Brubaker has a particular fascination with that, because you remember he did the same thing with Dead Enders. That idea of subverting the Archie...
0: Well, yeah, it's like playing with the Americana thing.
1: Right. But the thing is, first of all, in comics today, we already have a version of Archie that's doing modern storytelling using these characters in a better way. So that's first of all. Second of all, TV adaptation of Archie. And it's about sex and adultery and statutory rape because Archie is underage and his teacher's older. I don't know. They've been hinting that there's going to be like Cheryl Blossom and her twin brother are going to have some kind of incest storyline. And I'm like, what? What are you doing? It's standard fare for the CW. I don't begrudge them that because... That's about what you can expect from them on a regular basis. But why in the name of David Bowie are you doing all of this in Riverdale? That doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you attach Archie to that?
0: We've talked about it before because modern day TV and movies demand name cachet, right? So it doesn't matter if the show itself wouldn't be remotely connected to anything we think about as Archie Comics besides of the name and... You know, some of the design choices, as long as they can say, look, it's this thing that you already know. So you're going to at least some people are going to watch it.
1: I don't think that that's enough in principle. Right. When we're talking about what exists in popular culture, what exists in the zeitgeist. Yes, I do think that a lot of people today would still be tangentially aware of Archie, even if they've never read the comics, because it's sort of like this cartoon that exists somewhere in American consciousness. I accept that. But the distance to go from that awareness to having an actual show on an actual network that is doing typical CW stuff seems to me a bit weird. It seems like you have more of a stretch there to say the only thing they needed was brand recognition because you could have literally done this show with brands that are more relevant. Why is this not Saved by the Bell? whoa there you go though right this could just as easily be saved by the bell you've said it and now someone in netflix offices <laughs> oh, is just God. you know like there's a bell
0: and it goes ding and you're gonna regret it sean i'm
1: gonna have my ian mckellen moment from x-men 3 what have i, I, I done about to
0: watch it i think anyway because i don't no. care much for cw shows i don't care much for tv because you know I'm, I'm this sort of elitist hipster sort of person i am however very very curious to see what the Archie Twitter account is going to do about it. Because, <laughs> see, I follow the Archie Twitter account. It's one of the most hilariously fascinating Twitter accounts ever because it's almost like Chip Zadarsky is writing it. It's hilarious. He you might know, be, for all we know. They keep tweeting about burgers and like, we think Reggie is going to have an egg avatar on Twitter, right? He probably is an egg avatar person. Probably. It's very self-aware funny. So if the show is terrible, which as you say, it appears to be... I expect them to, like, run with it and make it an entertainment experience, at least for me on the offside.
1: I mean, if you really wanted to get meta about this, if you really, really wanted to be smart, what they would do would be to solicit a comic that would be a parody of what's going on in Riverdale. Because Riverdale is getting an ongoing series, as far as I know, based on the show, but they're going to play it straight. And I'm like, no, yeah, no, 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 no,
0: no, no, no. In, in Wade's series, they're going to do somebody's... Filming a show within Riverdale and twisting everything to make it dark, and Archie's like, That's
1: not my life. That would be funny.
0: And the Archie version of American Splendor, our movie year.
1: There you go. That would be hilarious, I think. But this CW nonsense is just like, people give it a pass. First of all, we already made it through the Vampire Diaries, and it's still going on, so I don't know why we need more of that. Second of all, do you really want to see Archie get statutory raped by his teacher?
0: Not really, no. No. (laughs) Uh,
1: Movie news.
0: Angela Bassett has joined the Black Panther movie. She's going to be T'Challa's
1: mother, Ramonda? Yes. So, okay. Ramonda's an interesting character, especially given what Taneci Coates is doing with her now. I've stopped
0: reading that run, so I don't know. I remember... Few of her appearance in the Priest run, in which she was a very impressive character, albeit with a small screen time.
1: Yeah, I have to imagine that that would be the case with the film as well, because it is ultimately about T'Challa himself. But they picked an excellent actress to play a complex role. I am a little bitter that now Angela Bassett decides that she's good enough for comic book movies, and she couldn't have been Storm 20 years ago, and save us a lot of Halle Berry. But... Oh, well, I guess I'll just have to let that grudge go. I,
0: I assume it's going to be one of those roles like Glenn Close in Guardians of the Galaxy where she's there for like two minutes of screen time. I don't know if that's true because... Something for the paycheck and to tell
1: the kids, you know,
0: like, look, Mommy is in a Marvel movie.
1: I don't know if that's the case, though, because with Romanda specifically, again, it depends on the direction they're taking the film, which we don't know the specific details of. But if they do go into the whole political situation in Wakanda and everything that's going on over there, there may be a case where she plays a larger role. I know that they've cast Shuri. I don't know who's playing Shuri in this film, but I know she's in it. So they are clearly doing stuff with T'Challa's family and the idea of the Black Panther identity being passed down. We'll see how that goes. I'm not entirely sure, but Bassett's an excellent actress. She's a great pick for the role. So, thumbs up? Really, this movie has an excellent cast so far. They've been going above and beyond to get some really, really good names.
0: If nothing else, the Marvel brand at this point can call on people. They can say, you know, you can be in a Marvel movie and get instant fame and fans. And I guess if you're one of those people who are adult enough to have, like, youngish kids... It's going to be one of those roles where if they offer it to you and you don't take it, your kids are going to hate you forever. (laughs) It's that story about uh, who played Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies?
1: You're asking the wrong person.
0: Famous actor. He was in the great TV show, The Cracker, whatever. And he said he got offered a role and he didn't want to take it, but he talked about it with one of his kids and they were like... You have to. You're taking it. (laughs) Even the first guy who played Dumbledore didn't want to take it, but his granddaughter
1: forced him sure, like, either sure. you take the
0: role or I'm not going to talk to you again So,
1: but on the other hand I mean two counterpoints to that would be first of all these movies do have like they allow the occasional showcase of an actor's talent you know Ian McKellen got a boost in his career partly out of X-Men that's not a Marvel studio movie it's not a Marvel studio movie but like playing these larger than life comic book characters used to be a sign of stigma used to be a sign of eh, that's the best that he could do Now I think that there is more of a shift towards, first of all, these roles pay well because they've got Disney money now. It's not a problem. They have these resources. But also I think an actor like Lee Pace, for example, who played Ronan in Guardians of the Galaxy, typically doesn't appear in big time Hollywood blockbusters, right? Wasn't he in The Hobbit? Yeah, it's sort of like these are uh, tend to be character actors who don't really get the A-list, big, explosive set pieces where he walks out with a hammer and starts screaming at the top of his lungs, you will all be judged, or whatever. So it it gives them the sort of opportunity to... Have some fun and play around. These movies are never going to be Oscar nominated, right? They're never going to get awards or academies or whatever. But listen, did the crowd at NYCC or SDCC or whatever Comic-Con it was, did that crowd not go completely banuno news when Sigourney Weaver stepped out? Yeah. You're damn sure they did. So there's a cash to that that goes beyond just, you know, I'm too good for this job. Again, Black Panther is having an excellent cast so far. I'm looking forward to the film. Bassett would only make it that much better.
0: Okay. Uh Sean, speak to us about comic news.
1: Oh, boy. So, this is sort of bittersweet. We had a bit of a foobar a few episodes back when we were talking about Rosie Press. Scheduling problems. Scheduling problems and their deals with Oni. And at the time, we hadn't known that Janelle Asselin had announced that she was stepping down, she was quitting comics. Due to personal reasons. Personal reasons and the fate of Rosie Press. She described it as being shuttered indefinitely. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Would more issues of Fresh Romance be published? It wasn't clear. There has recently been a development where Esslin has announced that Rosie Press is now part of Emmett Comics, a small company run by Maytal Gilboa. Not anyone I've ever heard of in any context, but... No? The press release specifically noted that Gilboa will be honoring Rosie Press's existing commitments to its readers and will continue to publish whatever stories were interrupted at the end of Fresh Romance. I'm not sure how or in what form that would take place. I imagine if they continue going through comiXology, then these things will be digitally available. It'll be fine. I assume they're
0: just gonna finish what they promised to do, which was at least one year, right? That was because some people paid for a year in advance. So I assume they're gonna finish with these stories, and maybe if it's a big success, they're gonna continue, because some of the names on... Fresh Romans, you know, they're not huge names. They're not your, I don't know, Grant Morrison's or Scott Snyder's or whatever. But they are above average names. They are well known. And they, I assume they need certain page rates for yeah. for work. Not knowing Emmet Comics beyond this news report, I assume they can't just afford to start paying all these names out of their own pocket.
1: Well, no, the idea seems to be that the first priority is indeed to complete the Fresh Romance run as it was originally scheduled. So these people have presumably already been paid if the issues were solicited but never released, right? So that's their first priority. Where they go from that is an interesting question because Asseline specifically mentioned the print volumes that are coming out through Oni. Now, there hasn't been any word as to whether these books were successful. We know that the reason for Rosie Press shutting down in the first place was not necessarily because of financial reasons, but because Asalyn herself just couldn't, uh, she cited health reasons at the time. So presumably there's something there that's not necessarily about the success of the book. That said... It's the old quandary of we don't have any information on digital sales. All we know is what she raised through the Kickstarter. And presumably that money was spent putting out the first couple of issues that were released.
0: I'm glad that Fresh Romance is continuing. I'm glad that people will get what they paid for. I think that's first priority because one thing that Kickstarter comics don't need is another big project going bust without providing what was promised. There's a lot of good things coming to comics via Kickstarter, but every time something like this happens, it doesn't matter if the reasons are, you know, for good or ill. It doesn't matter if you've promised too much or you simply couldn't do it or there was an health issue. Whenever something like this happens, it hurts the goodwill and it hurts other projects. So I'm happy it's going on. I'm happy for Rosie Press without being a fan of Rosie Press. I think we've talked about it before. I've tried reading the third three issues and I was like... "Mm -hmm." not for me, but I think it's good that it's out there. Rosie Press is like Fantagraphics for me, which is, I'm not actually going to sit down and read all of that. Definitely not, but I'm happy it's there for its audience, and I think it deserves recognition for what it's doing.
1: I would take that a step further. I would say, for me, something like Rosie Press, and specifically something like Fresh Romance... Very often feels to me like Island and Amazing Stories in that when you're dealing with an anthology format, I didn't like every single story that appeared in Island. I didn't like every story that appeared in Amazing Forest or Amazing Fantasy if we're going like really back. You remember when you remember that anthology they tried to relaunch?
0: I have actually recently tried to reread the original Amazing Fantasy.
1: No, not the one with Aranya.
0: No, 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 the original, the 1960s. Oh, my God. It's like, everybody remembers Spider-Man. Nobody remembers that in the same issue you had, The Living Mummy Strikes.
1: The Living Mummy Strikes. No, Something like that.
0: It strikes, it kills, it hunts.
1: But that's the thing about anthology titles specifically. You take on faith the notion that you might not enjoy everything that came out. And indeed, with Fresh Romance, you know, I really enjoyed the Ruby equation. I liked, uh, Marguerite Bennett had a two-part letter called Beauties, which I thought was very nice. The other two stories that saw print at that time, I was less a fan of. Anthology comics, there's always the possibility that you're going to find something really, really good. Even Island, where Brandon Graham is constantly pushing the envelope.
0: And Amarios.
1: Amarios, for example, her first story that was published in Island, uh, ID, I wasn't crazy about. I'll admit that it wasn't the most amazing thing to me. I wouldn't go and reread it. Daggerproof Mummy, I thought, was fantastic.
0: Yeah, I'm waiting for them to put it in trade. I actually talked to Brendan about it. He said they're going to do some extra ludra stuff and then do the whole, like, omnibus or whatever because this deserves print.
1: Absolutely. There was a short story by Dil Dilrajman, a Q. A bunch of women who are standing in line for a nightclub and their stories all connect and they have no idea.
0: Oh, yeah. That wasn't was that good. great?
1: That's exactly the thing. It's like, okay, I wasn't crazy about the furry porn, right? That part... I could have lived without. But at the same time, let it exist. I don't have to enjoy it. The next issue will have something else. So in the same principle, like if Rosie Press is indeed going to continue as part of Emmett Comics, I'm happy to hear that. I hope that they continue to produce material on a regular basis that is there and I might enjoy it and I might not. It's not that big a deal. I think that was all the news, right? That is. Not a lot has been going on. Everyone is too stuffed on turkey, I think, right now. So that means we can go to
0: previews. Yes. The previews for February 2017. And we start with, uh, not with Marvel or DC. We're going to start with Oni for a very special reason. Sean, you want to take
1: it away? Lo, we wield the power cosmic. <laughs> Last episode, Tom, you and I were sitting and talking about how unfortunate it was that Colleen Coover's older material had not seen the light of day. Not two weeks had passed. And behold, Oni Press is publishing Colleen Coover's Small Favors. The definitive girly porno collection. Via Limerence Press. Tom, we must be responsible with this power. What we say comes to pass. We have to be careful. So how about
0: those old Chuck Austin baseball comics?
1: Why you do this? (laughs) <laughs> why why you have that power and the first thing you use it for is Chuck Austin? Okay, okay and
0: if I could actually use that power, if it's <laughs> actually a thing that exists, you know what I would kill to see back in print? Do tell. The Adam Warren manga adaptation from the early nineteen nineties, late nineteen eighties, where he did the Americanized versions of the dirty pear and stuff. I have like very few like issues of that scattered around and I would kill for a complete collection.
1: I would like to see a re-release, either digitally or just in trade, of Zombie with an X.
0: I have no idea what it is. I assume the name is very descriptive.
1: Well, no. the Zombie, this was the one that... John Rosam's thing. The really weird series... Zombie.
0: I thought you meant a series called Zombie with X. Oh, literally an Zombie
1: X. with an X. That would be an X book, I think.
0: Not... <laughs> Zombie, X-O-M-B-I. Yeah, no, I
1: think that's something that Marvel would publish, Zombie with an X.
0: That sounds more like a dynamite thing, right?
1: Tom, with great power comes great responsibility.
0: Dynamite, get on it. <laughs> and get John Rosam, I haven't seen John Rosam in a while, right?
1: Honestly, I think that after DC screwed him over that second time with the mm, milestone static, comeback... right? Yeah, static, no. They also tried to bring back Zombie for, like, five issues, and it did not go well. I think after that, he took a step back from the industry, and I can't blame him. What happened to the Milestone revival we were talking about this last year, right? Uh, well, it came up during the roundtable, I think, the sort of intention that they had had to relaunch this entire thing, and it did not work out. And it's funny that you mention it, Tom, because the first item on DC's solicitations for February is the Wild Storm number 1. Oh, right. That's a thing that exists? Oh, yes. Warren Ellis... Art by John Davis Hunt, and this is, as we said last time, Ellis' attempt to reboot the Wildstorm universe with Grifter, Voodoo, The Engineer, Jenny Sparks, and others. Um, hmm. That is certainly a cast of characters. Tom, can you explain something to me? I I seem to have hit a stumbling block. Yes? Why is Warren Ellis introducing Jenny Sparks, the spirit of the 20th century, in 2016? Because nobody cares about
0: Jenny Quantum?
1: That would be accurate, yes.
0: Actually, it would be fascinating if she was played as the villain, like the old world refusing to let go, which would be very fitting to our own troubled times. It would.
1: It would. She would be like weaponized nostalgia. I could see that. Yeah,
0: But, but I don't think Warren Ellis is going to do it because he really loves that character.
1: He's also not self-aware enough to consider oh, that no, possibility. No, no.
0: I think he is. It just... When Warren Ellis falls in love with one of his characters, he just... He can't let go.
1: That's exactly what I mean. He's not self-aware enough to know that that would be a better use of Jenny Sparks as someone who represents a past that can't be... Because Warren Ellis just doesn't deal with the past. Like, he's always thinking about different futures and how crap they all are. But it's never a question of, you know, oh, nostalgia. He doesn't use it the way that, like, Alan Moore uses nostalgia, right? That
0: was either unaware or the greatest watchman joke in history.
1: Moore had this quote. I'll never forget it. He had that quote about how the whole point of nostalgia is it has to be gone, right? The past has to be something that you cannot revisit in order for it to be nostalgia. Otherwise, it's just this mawkish garbage that you keep regurgitating over and over again.
0: And then he did four volumes of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen about how he loves his old books. Well...
1: But in any event, so the Wild Storm number one. I don't know if I'll be looking into this. The fact that it's self-contained seems like a bonus in this case, because... It's self-contained now. This is DC. Well, what are the odds that we would start seeing crossovers between Young Animal and DC? It doesn't seem as likely because these are imprints that are being defined by specific individuals, right? We saw Batman in the latest Young Animal book we reviewed. Yeah, but you wouldn't have to read Batman to continue the story of Mother Panic, is what I mean by that. Because nobody wants to screw with Gerard Way that way. Because this is a project that's being helmed by Ellis, and I don't think Ellis is the crossover type, I don't remember him being that way.
0: No, the only one he did well was the one where we did Alien Stormwatch, where the whole point of it was, let's kill all those characters that I don't like. And let's never speak of it again because now it's in a crossover that we cannot reprint.
1: If I'm not mistaken, Ellis created Apollo and Midnighter, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: They were in his version
1: of Storm. Yeah, he introduced them. He, he created them. So I don't know if that's a connection he's going to exploit. Uh, I, don't I don't know what I that means. Th-
0: I think Apollo and Midnighter are going to stay in the DC universe. Probably. Unless they're going to do the stupidest things that they can do is do a different version of Apollo and Midnight? Oh, the, no. You don't need like two different... No. no,
1: we absolutely don't. I mean, the only thing that I can see happening here that might work out in terms of coherence is just Orlando is writing Midnighter and Apollo as a miniseries now, right? That ends in a couple of months and then we get the Wildstorm. Now, if he just hands them back to Ellis... I guess that's one way to do it, right? Where you just move the characters. As far as I know, these characters aren't appearing anywhere else in the DCU. It's not like Apollo is a recurring character in, I don't know...
0: Orlando is going to write Justice League, right? Something. Yeah, but he didn't... You know, he really loves his Midnighter. I think he's going to use him if he can. And it's Warren Ellis Wildstorm. If he wants to create another knockoff Superman, he has like 20 of them in yeah. the backstory, you know... It's the high and uh well, it's minor, it's the high and the low. It's the supreme guy and the uh cape guy and the cow guy, you know,
1: yeah, there's no shortage of possibilities there. We'll see. I'm sort of tangentially curious about it, albeit I'm also skeptical because of Alice's past with attempting to reboot entire universes. I just don't think he has the focus for it, but we'll see
0: speaking of Batman, that's a weird one. Batman by brian k vaughn t p b that's a collection of stories that apparently Brian K. Vaughn wrote Batman stories for a while, collecting Batman 588 to 590, Detective Comics 787, and Wonder Woman 160 to 161, and Batman Gotham Secret Files number one.
1: Damn, that must have been ages ago.
0: Well, yeah, Batman 588 to 590. I think before they've rebooted, it was like Batman 800,
1: so... Wow. So that would have been the beginning of his career, I guess, before he went to Marvel with like the series that he wrote exclusively.
0: Brian K. Vaughn used to do some pretty good superheroes, outside of the runaway, of course. He had some Spider-Man minis, which were
1: really good. So Yeah, Mystique was great. He actually had a pretty decent run on Ultimate X-Men. The last decent run in Ultimate X-Men. Pretty much. That was the moment where you really need to quit.
0: I dare say it's not going to be essential, but it could be some fun Batman stories written by a decent writer with art by Scott McDaniel, Rick Boucher, and Scott Collins. So it's a
1: decent artistic theme also. See, this seems to be a, a running theme with DC moving into 2017 because I have one other item here that I really have mixed feelings about. So Batwoman Rebirth number one. This is by Marguerite Bennett and James Tinian IV, with art by Ben Oliver and Steve Epting. With a creative team like that, it's kind of hard to say no. I've been in this weird position of waiting for Batwoman to get a creative team worthy of her, if that makes sense. I enjoy Kate Kane greatly, but ever since Rucka left, I haven't really been able to care about... All of that nonsense that was going on with Maggie Sawyer and the marriage and this team left and that team came in and it was just a mess. They want to start fresh now. They're using Bennett, who's pretty okay. Tinian, who's really good. Acting in Oliver on art seems interesting. It's just this usual skepticism always comes into play, which is like, I don't know what they're going to do with it. In two months, they could end up roping Batwoman into a crossover on her third issue that's not being written by Benedentinian, but someone else who's coming in and doing a crossover that changes the book completely Two issues after it's released. I don't I don't have the energy for that. You know, you don't want to commit. Exactly. I don't want to commit emotionally into looking into this stuff only to realize that it's not going to do what I'm hoping it does. So this is a book that I cautiously recommend, but advise... Waiting and seeing because, you know, we come down on diamonds so often and so righteously because of all the bullshit that they do. But the fact that they solicit books two, three, four months in advance is usually helpful for us only because you can see the warning signs coming.
0: Plus, because this is doing double shipping on almost everything, you know, three months in, it's already the first arc.
1: Yeah. And if it turns out that issue number five is a crossover with, I don't even know, crossing over... Gotham Academy. That might actually be cute, but I mean something more like crossing over with Teen Titans iteration number 572. I don't have time for that. I'm not interested in that. I don't care if Batwoman ends up getting tied into whatever crisis is coming up next. I don't want it. Anything
0: else from DC? Not a one. Well, I'm going to mention Marvel for two reasons. The first of which is that I don't care about Marvel (laughs) ongoing. And it's not that I don't care potentially, because like I keep on saying, Marvel has a lot of decent and a lot of great people working for them, right? You have your Mark Waid's, your L. Ewings, your Malachi Ward's, your Russell Doddermans, your Jason Aaron's. By all right, just sit back and let them produce good comics. But because they can't, And because they reboot and renumber and jump and crossover and cut, I can't care about the ongoings. So I just jump straight to the trade collections and I see two interesting things there. Spider-Man's Tangleweb Omnibus. This is a collection of the, I don't know if you remember, it was a series about the peripheral of the Spider-Verse written by a lot of very talented people. You had stories by Garth Ennis, Greg Rocca, Peter Milligan... Uh, Darwin Cooks, oh. the one with the rhino becoming smart for two issues and deciding right, he likes being stupid.
1: Right, right, I remember or, or that. Or
0: the Greg Rocca story about the Kingpin henchman who fails his boss and goes on to face his death with dignity.
1: Yeah, I remember that, yeah. There was some pretty decent stuff there.
0: I have the whole series in trade, 80% of it was good and the 20% wasn't wasn't bad, it was just like, okay-ish Spider-Man spin-off, but... If you haven't read it, you know, some very good stories there by some very good people. And the other thing, which is just so strange for me, Night Raven from the Marvel UK Volts TPB. What? This is a collection of a series that ran in Marvel UK, 280 pages, $35. Listen to that team, Written by Steve Parkhouse and Ellen Moore. Drawn by David Lloyd and John Bolton. What? It's apparently a Vigilante story, like World War II-era Vigilante story. But...
1: Who is Night
0: Raven? Find out in this complete collection of classic tales from the Marvel UK archives. Join the mysterious masked Vigilante in this pulp-era war on crime as this lone man of justice stealthily stalks his villainous prey in the streets of New York City and brands criminals with the mark of the deadly... Night
1: Raven. This is how you know Marvel is so stupid. Why would you ask who is Night Raven? In the solicitation text for a complete omnibus about the stories of Night Raven. If you don't know who Night Raven is, and I don't, why on earth would you buy the book to find out?
0: I guess it's aimed for the UK crowd. Marvel UK, you know, it's before my time, but all the British fans are still talking about liking most of the Marvel UK stuff. It's always weird to me that none of this stuff is available, at least on Comicsology or Epic. Like, most of the stories from Epic, you remember Epic? Why aren't they available? Why isn't that in, like, nice hardcovers? My
1: guess, legal issues. It has uh, to be, uh, like... Now clear. that I think
0: about it, just recently, 2008 AD announced that they've bought the rights to republish The Last American, which was the John Wagner series he did with Mike McCann for Epic. So, we've talked earlier, right, about stuff that's lost in the limbo of... Comics, So you have both Marvel UK and Marvel Epic, which ran for years and produced a lot of, well, I don't know if it's good because I have read them, but a lot of well-renowned stuff, which
1: is just gone. Yeah, but I think that unlike those other cases, I think what's different here is that Epic always had a very questionable approach to the whole notion of creators' rights and ownership, right? I remember they tried to bring Epic back a couple of years ago. And it completely fell apart because they. Oh couldn't right, have- the
0: Mark Miller thing, the, the terrible Mark Miller thing, the other terrible Mark Miller thing.
1: Of the many litanies of his crimes. But no, there was a situation there where the problem was they just couldn't hammer out an agreement wherein, on the one hand, the company would benefit from publishing these things. On the other hand, the material would be creator-owned and therefore, if you weren't happy at Epic, you could always just take your stuff and go.
0: Well, see, here's the thing. If you actually say creator-owned on Marvel ground, you burn. It's like vampires on holy ground. You can't, you, <laughs> you just, you can't say these words. If you're standing on Marvel territory... And you say "creator-owned"? Joe Quesada just appears behind you with a razor blade. <laughs> <laughs> like, what did you say? Pretty much. When DC was doing Vertigo at the early days and we're getting all the sales and publicity and awards, remember when we're like, "Creator, what?
1: What are these words that you're speaking?" When you say "creator," do you mean Stan Lee? Like,
0: not "creator-owned." Like, we own the creators. You. Know? <laughs> It sounds like, oh, oh, they own stuff? Strange, strange.
1: But I think that that's the reason why there are so many gaps in publication with exactly the stuff that sort of fell between the cracks, as it were. I do want to point out one thing about Marvel. Not as a recommendation, but just a sort of a curious decision that they're making. So February has you sandwiched between two events, right? You've got Inhumans vs. X-Men on the one hand, and you've got Monsters Unleashed on the other. And somehow, in the middle of all that, Marvel decided, for some reason that completely escapes me, Daredevil is a brand worth expanding now. Because we've got a Kingpin series by Matthew Rosenberg and Ben Torres.
0: Matthew Rosenberg, again, like I said, good creator, right? He does some very good stuff for Black Mask.
1: Uh, we've got Electra Number 1 by Matt Owens and Alec Morgan. And we've got a Cullen Bunn bullseye miniseries, which nobody asked for and nobody needs. But it does seem weird to me that they're doubling down on Daredevil of all books as a franchise. Well,
0: see, he has a TV show, so therefore it's going to work. It's got to work. It's like the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. comic, which are so successful, everybody buys Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., right?
1: Is there actually still an Agents
0: of S.H.I.E.L.D. comic?
1: I think S.H.I.E.L.D. was canceled. It wasn't called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it was called S.H.I.E.L.D., Mark Wade was writing it. I think it was cancelled after Secret Wars. I think I haven't checked to be sure.
0: It was erased from our continuity and from our collective consciousness. And
1: we <laughs> like Mark Wade. We do, but listen, not everything Mark Wade touches turns to gold, right?
0: Not even he could make Agent Coulson interesting as a main character.
1: Oh no, you're right.
0: So image,
1: image. Uh, I'm a little, Tom. I'm a little worried about Greg Rucka. I think he might have uh, Alzheimer's or something. So, The Old Guard number 1 by Greg Rucka and Leandro Fernandez. Immortal Soldiers are Acting as Mercenaries. Wasn't that the premise of Lazarus Tom is Greg Rucka stuck in a time loop? No,
0: no, no, no. Lazarus is Immortal Soldiers acting as corporate enforcers.
1: Oh, I see. Do you share my concerns for Greg Rucka? I don't read Black Magic so I don't know, but you know, I think Greg
0: Rucka is going to be fine. I would hope so. You know, there's going to be tough dames. They're going to kick some punch and punch some kicks. And we're going to learn something about the corrupt nature of humanity. I want to mention Sun Bakery Number 1 by Corey Lewis. This is a republication of an anthology series that he had via Alternative Comics, which I think is the smallest publisher still in Diamond. And I've ordered them because I love some Corey Lewis art. He did the old uh, Oni series Shark Knife, which I don't know if you've read. You know, spectacular art. And it's like anthology of all the stories written and drawn by him. So I've ordered the first three issues via my local comic book store, right? And Diamond sent issue two without sending issue one and three.
1: Well, there's Diamond for you, right?
0: And I'm stuck with it, I'm like, oh, this is some beautiful art. I have no idea what's going on. I'm so happy that this is getting republished via some, you know, bigger publisher. I do wonder how many issues of that are going to come up because I think he only published three via Alternative Press. And they were also bi-monthly because it's 48 pages and, you know, he has to do everything. So take some time.
1: I wonder if it's similar in design to what they're doing with Headlopper, where they re-release the issues that were already published and are then continuing with the creator. I assume so. I don't know. I've never heard of this title before. The only thing I know about it is that the solicitation stated that it's an anthology book. That's all the information I have, so I'm willing to take a look at it on those grounds.
0: Sean, how can you not like a comic featuring Batrider? A supernatural skateboarding comic. Now that I think about it, we're going to talk about a supernatural skateboarding comic later in this issue. And we've mentioned Island, which means we've talked about Ludrow, which means this will be the third supernatural skateboarding comic we talk about in one episode.
1: You see, Tom, everything is connected. You were right. Is this a fashion? Is this thing now? Are skateboards coming back? No, I think you know what it is. This is the result of... It's something that we've always talked about in theory as happening soon. I think it may actually be happening now where the people who are coming into comics now grew up during the 90s when skateboarding was all the rage, right?
0: Well, when I grew up, it was already going on to rollerblades. So...
1: That's probably next. You know, that's going to be the next new wave. Uh, One other item from Image that I think is worth mentioning, although I'll admit I'm a little shaky on the specifics. So, Revival Number 47 by Tim Seeley and Mike Norton is the final issue of the series. Wow, that's a lot of issues. I mean, it didn't make it to 60 the way that most Image books do when they're limited in advance, right? Well,
0: they claim to do. Most of them don't do it simply because they take a break, and then another break, and then another break, and then another break. Chu made it to 60, as it intended to do. How how many issues does Saga has right now? Like 40? Saga's
1: at 40 now, and I think that Vaughn they haven't put a number on it, but I have to imagine that at 60 Vaughn's gonna do like in Why of the Last Man and be like, okay, that's enough. Yeah.
0: A lot of image series talk about going to these numbers. Most of them just don't reach it, or at least if they do, they take forever. Yeah.
1: I'll admit I sort of lost the plot fairly recently. The last book, sort of, I'm not entirely sure what's going on here anymore, but I will be rereading it when the series concludes, because it did start off in a very interesting way, and I'd like to see how it ends.
0: Light, the complete collection. Uh, yeah, This collects the four-issue miniseries by, written by Brandon Graham with art by Marion Churchland. Now, the first two issues were the best of the whole eight-house. Not disaster, but failure i read all of the stuff published until up until now from the eight house including from under mountains and mirror which were originally meant to be part of it and then were not mm, so many talented people so little of it was actually good but the first two issues of Arclight were spectacular i'm waiting for the next two issues to be published because they're still i'm still listed to them
1: i think in my local comic book shop I mean, I was so excited about this project. I was really interested in it. At the same time, acknowledging that it did not work out for whatever reason. And I do think the content wasn't great. From Under Mountains ended up being... It's like five issues of a
0: paralogue to a story.
1: Yeah, it's just, nothing happened in those issues. Mirror was impenetrable to me. I couldn't figure out what was happening. I just I, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and then keep letting me down. It's quite frankly more trouble than it's worth. I didn't even bother reading the first issues of the other books in Eight House. Kim and like that. Kim and there was uh, one more Yarrow. I think it was yeah. called that are supposed to be four issues and have never materialized, and I didn't bother getting into it, right? It did sort of put a mark on Brandon Graham in terms of a failure to... Because think about it this way. This series, right, 8 House, the 12 issues, could have just been over by now. The 12 issues could have come out. We're here, what, two years later, three years later? Two, not three. Two years, okay. Two years after the fact And those 12 issues, not only did they not come out, but the ones that did come out were never completed. I mean, you said it's not a disaster. It kind of is. In terms of content. In terms of content, it was just messy, you know, which could have been the case. But the thing is, if the books had been coming out on a regular basis, then the occasional messy flip up or a mistake or whatever could have just been absolved and moving on to the next one.
0: If you're going to get delayed, you better be great, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. If it had come out consistently and, like, if From Under Mountains had been part of Eight House and it had just been a six-issue arc that nobody liked and you could move on and not go back to it...
0: In retrospect, it should have been published via Island, right? Probably. Because Island already publishes like a whole yeah. like two or three issues worth every month. And so, for all that
1: Brandon Graham kept talking up the fact that From Under Mountains was set in the eight house world, you know, the eight house world was so poorly defined that I don't think how could you tell?
0: It was like uh, what was that old comic company that ran for like five years? CrossGen. CrossGen, right? Where everything was part of the same multiverse, but none of the creators wanted their series to actually interact so you had your pirate comic and your uh mystery comic and your future war comic and your fantasy comic and they were all part of the same world but they took place on different planets and different realities so nobody cared
1: when I really get into it, I think that might have been exactly the point where Eight House failed. It was marketed as being a shared universe in which all of these titles, Kiem and Arclight and Yarrow and Mirror and all of these things, were meant to show different aspects of this same fantasy world that Graham had cooked up. In practical terms, that was not the case. These books had nothing to do with each other. They didn't share any plot. They didn't share any characters. They barely set the same setting because if you look at Mirror and you look at Arclight, you don't get any sense that these books are happening in the same place.
0: Well, good. Because Light was better than Mirror. I don't yes, want him to be. Yes,
1: I absolutely stipulate that point. But I'm saying this might be exactly the reason why it all imploded. Because you are looking for those connections and the possibility of weaving them together. Sort of like, you know, if we want to take the example that is being successful right now, it's the Defenders paradigm, right? where you have these self-contained stories that are all very clearly and very obviously set in the same little corner of New York because you know that those track lines, those plots are going to intersect at the end. That was the idea here, and it never worked out. It ultimately ended up being, yeah, sure, you can go read Light, the complete collection, those four issues put together, the fantastic artwork, the story, from what I read of it, seemed okay to begin with. I was interested to know what happened next you can have that and then just not touch anything else from 8th house but that is a failure.
0: If those books were meant to boost one another and to be like, if you like this, you would love this, well, no. I hyped that series up to the nines to my blog readers in Hebrew like, oh, this is going to be the greatest thing ever and when it came out, I'm like sheepishly, well, not so much. One third of it is going to be the greatest thing ever and then like, one fourth of it is going to be the greatest thing ever. Oh, that one-fourth is not coming out. But now... Well, the last two issues are coming out. Been solicited. Will be published. We will get the complete collection. You can forget about the other stuff. Sit down. Read Arclight. $15. 128 pages. Great writing. Beautiful art. I'm so sad that Marion Charlton doesn't draw more You know, comics. She does like her own blog stuff. And she does covers for Island every once in a while. But... I really want to see her do more comic. Absolutely. Uh, anything else from Image for you? Nope. Dark Horse? Dark Horse? I have nothing. Do you have anything? Empowered and the Soldier of Love, number one of three. Oh, this here is we go. Min- <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I like me some Adam Warren. And this is a weird thing. It's a miniseries from the... Like a spin-off from Empowered featuring their own uh, parody Magical Schoolgirl. Because it's Adam Warren, you know. He's got to have his parody. By while it's written by Adam Warren, it's not drawn by him, it's drawn by someone called Carla Diaz. And up until now, Empowered was mostly you know Adam Warren's own own little thing. He had some spin-offs with other people, but this is strange to me. I am interested, I've stopped reading Empowered after Volume Eight, not because it was bad, simply because I was drawn out by other stuff. But I do wanna reconnect to the story and I think I'm gonna take that opportunity and try it.
1: That's possible. I mean, I would assume that the reason for the art change is because she's someone who works with the sort of house style that Empowered developed, which is like cheesecakey, but not really.
0: The actual style of Adam Warren in Empowered is very strange, because he's doing these rough pencils and taking the issue directly from them, and it looks like nothing else on the shelves.
1: Yeah, but then M has like an enormous rack, so... True. It's one of those rare things where it's a parody of
0: porn, which is, it's a, it's a parody of porn, which is still self admittedly pornographic, erotic, whatever, while still managing to deconstruct it. And usually when something's saying like, Oh, I'm a deconstruction of something while being that thing. I'm like, No, you're just that thing. You're like, you know, the sucker punch problem, which is. Oh, I'm deconstructing the way male viewers watch all those beautiful women dress like fetish dolls on screen. And I'm saying, no, you're just putting all those beautiful ladies in fetish clothing on screen. Empowered actually manages to go
1: deeper within that. Not enough, though. Like, I, I do think you hit it on the nail there. It is the sort of sucker punch problem of you can say you're doing that deconstruction and you can, in fact be doing that deconstruction. It's not a contradiction to say that Sucker Punch both affirms and deconstructs the thing that it's talking about. But the problem is, the message gets muddled when you're saying, like, look at imps enormous breasts. Aren't they ridiculous? Look at them! And it's like, well... It's not just that. And
0: she is an actual character. She A, you also get the male characters being yeah. fetishized. And B, the fact that she's not just that. She's not just... disconnected fetish doll she's not a zack snyder sounding board of a woman she's an actual character with fears and achievements and she's trying to succeed but she she's not just you know taken from the notes she's a fully realized character and for me that makes not the whole of the difference but most of the difference another thing from dark horse for me yeah uh the visitor how and why he stayed this is an hellboy spin-off miniseries which, A, is written by Mike Mignola? Didn't he retire last year? Repeatedly. But apparently he only retired from drawing because he's writing both that and another Hellboy graphic novel. Wow. What's interesting to me is that this is drawn by Paul Grist.
1: Paul Grist?
0: Paul Grist from uh, Jack Staff.
1: Jack Staff, right! Oh my god, I haven't heard that name in years! Wow!
0: Jack Staff, Mudman, uh, what was that crime series he had in black and white? Kane, Kane. His style, it's like, I never thought of it as a Hellboy style, but when I started it thinking about it, yeah, it could work great. This is about the alien who was one of the witnesses to Hellboy's birth on Earth. Okay. So, Paul Gris doing aliens in the Hellboy version. Sure! Yeah, I'm curious.
1: Why not? Anything else from Dark Horse? Nope. Tom, I'd like to pick your thoughts about something. Let's talk about Boom for a bit. We have another intercompany crossover here. We've got Planet of the Apes and Green Lantern. This is a six-issue mini written by Robbie Thompson and Justin Jordan, art by Barnaby Bagenda.
0: From the most well-received, most highly regarded science fiction series of the last two years to that. He deserves every cent and every penny.
1: Explain to me what is this thing, Tom? What am I supposed to make of this?
0: I remember I've read the first issue of the Green Lantern Star Trek crossover they had a few years, a year back. Yes. Wasn't very good, never bothered with the rest of it, but it was successful enough for them to do another miniseries and now this. So apparently there was enough of a waiting period between the big intercompany crossovers that the public appetite is now... On the up and up again. You remember for a while in like the late 90s, early 2000s, they were everywhere and people got sick and tired because they were all crap Yeah, and they were everywhere. And for like 10 years, nothing. And now it's back.
1: But what's confusing me here is the randomness of it all. When you were thinking about those old intercompany crossovers that used to happen back in like the Malibu days or whatever... Those sort of made sense, I guess, just in terms of they were doing similar things.
0: Yeah, you, even the recently we reviewed, like, Judge Dredd vs. Alien vs. Predator. That makes sense. Yeah. You say these characters belong together. When you say Planet of the Apes, Green Planet Lantern... Planet of the Apes and Green Lantern? It sounds like a comedy skit, right? It sounds like a robot chicken thing.
1: You blew it up, you bastards. You blew Oa up? What is that supposed to be exactly? I don't... And, I mean, it's Robbie Thompson and Justin Jordan who are okay writers. They're not, you know, super talented, but they're decent. And Barnaby began to honor. What? I don't know what to make of it. I mean, the, think of it this way. You say Star Trek versus, or Star Trek and Green Lantern was not great. That would make sense to anybody who was familiar with either of those properties because they have very, very different starting points. Planet of the Apes? I mean, is there an actual planet populated by apes that the Green Lanterns are going to visit then? I, I assume so. Is Dr. Zaius going to get a ring? Yep. Are they going to do the Dr. Zaeus Dr. Zaeus musical from The Simpsons? Unlikely trademark. Okay, well, uh, good luck, Thompson and Jordan. I'm not checking that one out, but mm, I did think that no. it was curious. Well, this one's curious. Death Be Damned, number one. By Ben Acker and Ben Blacker of the Thrilling Adventure Hour.
0: Which I like. Their comic output up until now, not so much.
1: Well, my understanding is the only other major thing that they've written so far was Deadpool vs. Gambit. Which was... uh, I mean, it was Deadpool vs. Gambit. They
0: they, they also did like two Deadpool one-shots. And one of the Thrilling Adventure Hour spin-off comics, which wasn't that good...
1: So they're co-writing this with Andrew Miller and art by Hannah Christensen. It's about a murdered woman in the Old West who can't die until she avenges her family. For a typical Boom miniseries, that could work.
0: But there's an extra twist, right? Something with her memories. She's cursed to lose part of her memories every time she's killed. So
1: it's the Highlander, but she loses her
0: mind every time.
1: It's the nameless one from the video game called Planescape Torment, where every time he dies, he loses part of his memory. At the very least, it does put sort of an interesting twist on the usual bent for revenge. Well,
0: it sounds like one twist too many, unless they're going to connect the memory thing to the immortality thing on a deeper level than plot mechanics.
1: Could be. They may not have proven themselves as superb writers yet, but I think Acker and Blacker have a certain level of talent. And I'm curious to see what happens next.
0: Well, since you've mentioned
1: Boom. Yes. I'm
0: going to mention The Realist, Plug and Play OGN. This is another collection of uh, oh. Hanukkah strips.
1: Yes, he is very, very good. Absolutely.
0: I love his strips. When they appeared in the newspaper in Israel. But I bought the first collection anyway. It's and I'm going to buy this one. He's one of the finest one-page cartoonists working nowadays. I
1: love his sense of humor.
0: I love it, but you know, whenever I read one page, I'm like, oh, life is meaningless. (laughs) Give me more. Destroy
1: me now. (laughs) I remember the first time I ever read any of his strips, it was a one-page strip where he's describing how being a parent is like being all four of the Fantastic Four at the same time. Because you have to be able to stretch to take care of both kids at the same time. You're invisible when they run past you to their mom. Uh, you have to be, like, on fire in order to hug them and keep them warm. And you have to be the thing when they insult you and you not take it personally.
0: He did that one-page strip about being a writer, right? Being a writer and artist and sitting in front of a page in desperation and then ended up vomiting a rainbow upon the page.
1: Yeah, he's really, really good. Here's another curious one that I'd like your input on. So, we have The Power of the Dark Crystal. This is a 12-issue miniseries by Simon Spurrier. That's like
0: six issues too
1: much. Uh, Well... Art by Kelly and Nicole Matthews. It's the 35th anniversary of the Jim Henson film, The Dark Crystal. And apparently, according to Boom, this is the official sequel. What are your thoughts, Tom?
0: My thought is that I know what The Dark Crystal is. I know that I've watched at least half of it as a child. I don't remember enough about it.
1: I would not... 35th anniversary. This film came out 30 five years ago it came three years before i was born boom there is a statute of limitations to how far back you should be taking this crap for god's sakes give the time machine a rest this is the
0: publisher of escape from new york the comic book Arkea were pretty successful with the storyteller miniseries but the storyteller it's just you know it's a legend comic right it's It's an anthology comics featuring all sorts of legendary monsters and witches and giants and dragons. You can do pretty much everything and call it a storyteller comic. And people like The Dark Crystal. It's like a mini classic, I would assume, but they like it because it's a particular thing, because it's a Jim Henson puppet movie. Would they like it...
1: Simply for the story, would they like to see it on a page? It's sort of like, it reminds me a lot of The Labyrinth, right? How The Labyrinth has been romanticized and really pumped up. I have watched
0: it this year. It's not very good.
1: It isn't, but also the larger issue is if David Bowie hadn't been playing the Goblin King, then no one would remember that movie. Right To a very large extent, it's his voice, his image, that tends to bring up those associations again and again. Nobody watches that movie for Jennifer Connelly. I don't have a problem with Jennifer Connelly. I like her. But she is not the catch for that film. So if you were to take him out of it and be like, let's do a Labyrinth sequel featuring somebody else. Good luck with that.
0: Anything else from Boom? No. I'm going to mention IDW... Go for it... Cosmic Scoundrels number one... This is a five-issue miniseries... Written by Andy Soriano and Matt Chapman... Matt Chapman... He of the Chapman brothers... They of the Strongbed email fame... And it's drawn by Andy Soriano... That I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff... He was an animator... On Dexter's Lab and Samurai Jack... And he had some comic stuff... He did the Samurai Jack comics... At least the first five issues... Which were if nothing else beautiful... And it's a space comedy about two, like, space scalawags, they call them. Love Savage and Rochambeau, who shuttle from job to job and find themselves on the wrong side of the law.
1: Sure, why not?
0: It sounds like a fun comedy book. And these two... Matt Chapman is a very solid comedy writer, at least in animation and, like, web animation. And Andy Soriano is the perfect artist for this type of story.
1: I think Chapman did Gravity Falls...
0: I think he was a writer. He's not the yeah. creator, but he was a writer, if I remember
1: correctly. Okay, For a five-issue mini, why not? I have another item from IDW.
0: Okay.
1: Darkness Visible number 1. This is by Mike Carey and Arvind Ethan David, with art by Brendan Cahill. It pains me to admit this, but Mike Carey's name isn't as much of a draw to me as it used to be. Uh, I read his novel, The Girl with All the Gifts, and was not impressed. Oh, I really liked The Girl with All the Gifts. That ending, though. The ending was what made it for me. No, the ending was dreadful. For me,
0: the book was like a 7 out of 10, but then the ending like jumped it up a notch.
1: See, I would have started with 8 out of 10 and then bring it down to 5. But and anyway, maybe. now the problem here is the angle is yet another detective story with demons. And honestly, Kill or Be Killed just finished its first arc. Demonic is still going on. I don't know why. All, you know, maybe it's because of the Lucifer TV show. That all of a sudden everybody wants to do, like, detective procedural investigation stories No,
0: Grant Morrison was right. The universe does move in creative waves. It's the season of Magic Skateboards and uh, Demon Detectives. Which, by the way, is the name of our new punk EP.
1: That's the episode title. Demon Detectives and Magic Skateboards.
0: No, 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 Sean, Sean, Sean. We're going to start a new comic, you and me, right now. About a demon detective who always is a who rides guy. on
1: a magic skateboard
0: all the time. He can never get yes! off the skateboard. That's his curse.
1: Yes, cursed
0: to forever ride on the skateboard. And like the Silver Surfer. Yes, like, I want to ride the cosmic waves, but I can only ride on the streets.
1: Oh my god, that is brilliant! So we need to find an artist for this. We can be the new Acker and Blacker.
0: I'm gonna draw it. I'm gonna draw it like uh, XKCD. <laughs>
1: Why not? So the thing about Darkness Visible is I can't recommend it wholeheartedly because on the one hand, Carrie's still a good writer, but he has been a little shaky lately for my tastes. And the premise doesn't really, you know, it's another detective who makes a deal with a demon to save his daughter. We've seen that already. I don't know if there's anything here that is worth checking the book out for. But we'll see.
0: I'm going to mention from Titan Press... Forever War number one. I'm just going to mention it to tell you to wait for the trade. This is an English translation of the French comic adaptation of Joe Haldeman's science fiction classic, The Forever War, which originally came out, as far as I know, in like a trilogy of albums. The adaptation was written by Haldeman and then artist uh, Maravano just did uh, the art Mm -hmm. according to his script. And they were very well regarded historically i remember when i just started reading comic and looking for old science fiction comic and people were talking about oh this is great but they were just in french so <laughs> so now it's translated to english in issue form which for me it's like nah i'm just gonna wait for the trade but when it does come out on trade i'm gonna be there because i love me forever one i love some french sci-fi
1: that's fair. I guess if you're left hanging after reading the issue, you could always just read the oh, book. Oh, uh,
0: in case you don't know what The Forever War is, A, you know, shame on you. It's a great book. If Starship Troopers was the World War II of science fiction, The Forever War is Vietnam. It's like the depressed contemplative answer to the righteous war, wah-wah, jingoism, a fine line. Right. Written by some guy who actually was in a war, unlike Heinlein who mostly sits on the side.
1: Yeah. That's actually a really good parallel. Kudos. Uh, Anything else? No, I got nothing else. Pretty slim pickings. I think like... Good for our wallet, Sean. Good for the wallet. It's traditional for them to start slow with 2017. March, I think, is when things are going to start heating up.
0: Shall we go on to the reviews?
1: Let's. Sean, introduce us to our first review. We will be discussing, and I apologize for this in advance, New Talent Showcase number 1 from DC. Mm -hmm. A book that I was not prepared for on several levels.
0: When you picked that book, you did not know it's going to be 80 pages long, did
1: you? I did not know it would be 80 pages long. I did not know that it would be an anthology title in which every single story is a tease for a book that's not coming out, which infuriated me.
0: Two-third of them are based on the same story structure of here's the big reveal and then backtrack, let's see how we got here. And also that new talent is new bracket to DC, close yeah. bracket talent, because some of these people have been working for years in other companies.
1: When we mention their names, I think it's going to be very clear who is... Christopher Sabella. Yeah. Who
0: we reviewed before.
1: That's their definition of new talent. They made the case that this is an annual tradition with them now. This book is the product of a workshop program that DC ran trying to cultivate new talent in their house, right? When I chose this book for review, I was sort of thinking like the giant floating head from Rick and Morty. Like, show me what you got... And some of these started to deliver and some of them did not.
0: A lot of the people that I already like from here, if this was my first introduction to them, I would be like, Huh, these folks aren't that talented.
1: Well, I did have some introductions.
0: If I didn't already know that I kind of like Emma Beebe, I wouldn't be that impressed by her story here. I would be like, I don't care
1: for her that much. Well, see... Emma Beebe was a revelation for me. But let's break it down sort of in order and, and go piece by piece. And I think because these stories are designed, and this is something that infuriates me, and I'll talk a lot more about it when we're done with the sort of breakdown, but the idea that these are all just teases are deeply frustrating. Let's start with just sort of like going down the line. Hellblazer, The Road to Hell, and All That, which is by Adam Smith and Sia Um. Smith does something interesting here with Constantine. Constantine is usually torturing himself because of his own mistakes, right? His own failings. He didn't save the right person. He didn't do the right thing. Smith makes it about he knows a secret about someone else that he can't talk about. And that's the thing that's torturing him. I like that. It's something that makes Constantine a little more sympathetic because usually when he's sitting at a bar and drinking himself to death because, oh, my friends and oh, I did this and I did this, like he sort of turns into a sad sack at some point. Hellblazer ran for 300 issues and it was always like, oh, my, the, the weight of my past and my crimes and my, like, yeah, okay, we get it, right? This time, the idea that he didn't actually do anything wrong, but that he, is torturing himself because he knows something and he can't tell someone he loves. A secret. That part I thought was an inventive shift on Smith's part. Something that has potential as a different way of characterizing Constantine than the way we usually see him, without it being jarring.
0: I sense a but coming.
1: No, no but. Um you know Oom's art was okay. It was fine.
0: It's still... Years later, I'm still not convinced that the idea of Constantine in the DC universe dating Zatanna is a good idea in any way, shape, or form. No. It It feels wrong. And it's not impossible to do it because when Orlando started using Midnighter in the DC universe, the idea of him being wrong there was used as a plot point. It wasn't that he was watered down. It's just that he felt out of place and that was part of the story. This is just watered down Constantine. It's a story that we would have seen in Hellblazer, I think, simply without Zatanna and without the PG-13 rating.
1: Not in Hellblazer. It would have been seen in Constantine after the Hellblazer thing was canceled and he moved from Vertigo to DC. I think the mode of looking at John Constantine as his Vertigo self, which was unrestrained and more extreme, I think that version's gone. The only one that we have now is the one that we're seeing in the context of the DCU. His dating Zatanna just seems weird because her quote-unquote magic is a gag, right? She says things backwards. That's her magic spell. Yep. So she's sort of a comedy figure.
0: She's also supposedly much more powerful than him, which would be interesting if they ever decided on how his powers work within the DC Universe.
1: I don't know how that works. But that's something that's not Smith's fault. Here I just sort of appreciate the experiment of trying to get Constantine's head out of his own ass and deal with other things. It was nice. Wonder Woman, Blood and Glory. This is by Vida Ayala and Carrie Randolph. Now, I know I've heard Carrie Randolph's name before.
0: She did some covers for Marvel. I think she drew some issues of the young adult Spider-Man thing,
1: Spidey, I think. Could be. I, I know I've seen that name. Yeah, yeah, the name is familiar. So what was your thought of about Wonder Woman and Blood and Glory? How much blood, how much glory?
0: Well, I thought I really want to read *Joke Keating Glory again. <laughs> yes. Like, it's, it's like she's fighting monsters and then the flesh comes and she acts very rudely towards the flesh for no reason. And, he, and he's so nice about it. He's like, I know that you're going through, I guess, something from her own series, I assume. Is it? I have no idea. She's thinking like, I am war. Is she the goddess of war?
1: Tom, these are the literal notes that I have here on this story. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Ask Tom about Diana.
0: I don't know. I haven't read the rocket stuff. Is she the goddess of war now? Because he's saying something like, you've upgraded, and she's thinking like, I am wrath. I am the eternal flight of arrows, the endless class of swords.
1: I am war. Well, this is the weird thing. She says that, but then when he calls her princess, she says queen. Yeah. So is she also the queen of Themyscira? I don't know. But that doesn't make any sense. This can't be a story based on Rucka's run, because this was written during the workshop, which was before Rucka was writing... So maybe
0: it's based on the Azarello run. She killed Ares, I think, in the Azarello version. Oh,
1: God. I think. I think. Oh, God. Well, pass. Whatever.
0: You know, it's not a story. It's a trailer for apparently a setup that, that no longer exists. Which
1: is true for almost all of these stories. It's true for the next one as well, right? White Lantern Dead Beacons by Michael Morecki and Barnaby Baganda.
0: Hey, remember when Barnaby Baganda drew a great Kyle Rayner story? That's not that one.
1: Let's be fair here. Okay. I like the idea of the villain that's introduced here as someone who idolized the lanterns and he waited for them. He wanted to become one and they never came. I like that concept. They
0: chose, the the ring chose someone
1: else. And he's so bitter about it. Yeah, that's fine. That I understand. But unfortunately for DC, I am not at the point yet where I'm willing to see other creators work on Kyle Rayner after Tom King. I'm not there yet. So I don't have time for any of this nonsense. Kyle Rayner has a pregnancy scare in that he's scared that Carol is pregnant. He gives a speech about the power of life, which is so on the Generic. Oh, my God. Death has great power, but life has more power. And oh, the two God. halves of
0: the story are not really that connected to one another. they for, for a minute there, I thought these were two different stories. Did I miss, like, a title page? Is this, like, a new story? No, it's the same story.
1: What a bunch of nonsense. It looks pretty. It does. Barnaby Brigenda, he
0: sure knows how to draw stuff in space.
1: If Kyle Rayner does end up coming back in some book, if DZ does commission that, I wouldn't be surprised if they gave it to Begenda just to keep the visual flow going and create some kind of iconic association. But nobody has time it's, for it
0: at this point. For me, Rayner is like Elektra after Miller, which is yeah, exactly. If you're gonna let someone else write it, you really do looks for someone up, up, up there, right? Or just or just let it go.
1: It's sort of a no-win scenario, right? It's the idea that if someone else is going to start writing Kyle Rayner now, they either have to work within the very, very specific framework that King established.
0: They're probably going to just ignore it.
1: Yeah, which nobody wins in that case. Tom, please don't judge me, but, um, Hot Girl, Weapons of War, Erica and Sunny Lou, I skipped because I don't have the time to parse Hot Girl's backstory.
0: Uh, I've read it. Um, so you talk oddly about enough, it, yeah. I didn't really like the art, despite loving Sonny Lou. Usually, I don't know something about the style he adapted for this story didn't appeal to me. And by the way, new talent, Sonny Lou, new talent. <laughs> I've read Sonny Lou comics when I was thirteen. What a bunch of nonsense. And let's just a different Sonny Lou. Maybe it's just a different guy called Sonny Lou. Sonny
1: Lou, the sequel.
0: Again, it's one of those things that. Could be an interesting setup for a miniseries, but because it's just a trailer for a series that doesn't exist, it's meaningless. The idea that she's a cop, an alien cop on Earth, and she's stuck here because a collection of destructive alien superweapons just, you know, were spread all over the Earth, and she's trying to collect them in her day job as a human detective and in her night job as a superhero. Too complicated for me. I can't... No, it's just it's simple. You know, she's a space cop, and she's working as a cop on Earth.
1: And she's fighting elder gods, Tom.
0: Well, yeah,
1: why not? I don't uh, pass. Next, next, get me out of here. Dead Man, Killing Time by Christopher Sabella and David Messina. Now, I have to be honest, I have given Christopher Sabella a tough time in the past. I wasn't always fond of stuff that he did. We weren't crazy about demonic.
0: He was never a bad writer. He was just an exceptional writer. I, I would never go out of my way to look for a Christopher No, book. Um, no,
1: no, no, no. But I, I think that's sort of the quality that I've come to associate with him, which is the idea of he's not bad, but I also don't ever feel like what I need to do now is go read a Christopher Sabella book. Just sort of expectations of mediocrity. But I have to give him credit. He does a pretty good job with... Dead Man specifically. And this is not a character who I have a ton of affinity for. But, you know, when you read the story, it's a very clear intro to Dead Man as a character, right? Boston Brand is this ghost. He's hovering around. He possesses people to try to save them in order to...
0: Balance the scales of his life so he can go to paradise.
1: Exactly. To satisfy this goddess who's always chasing after him. Like, you know, balance, 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 balance. And it sets up an interesting mystery where he saves someone and then in three minutes he's in danger again. So there's something else going on over there. Potentially intriguing. I'm not exaggerating to say this is probably the best I've ever seen out of Sibella, which suggests to me that if this workshop had any practical, useful effect, it was that it gave those writers who were sort of hovering on the edge of mediocrity, the tiniest push to maybe, you know, tighten up their, where they fail.
0: Okay, the next is a Wonder Girl story written by Hannah Khan and drawn by Emanuela Lupacino with inks by Ray McCarthy. And I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you've you talked about the mess that is the Hawkman continuity. <laughs> Which, <laughs> this is Donna Troy? No, this is the other one. No, I, know, I think right? this is
1: uh, Cassie Sandsmark from this Young Justice.
0: Because I've read it twice and I don't remember... Uh, my my mind just became like water onto a duck just flow over Sean she appears she fights some things and then there's this guy who was maybe her boyfriend and he was supposed to be dead but he's not and apparently she got her powers because she and him stole some mystical artifacts from her mother.
1: Dude, I'm reading this flashback and I'm like, is this something that actually happened or is it something that Henacon invented? Because I don't remember anything about this, but I also have no idea where has Cassie Sandsmark been for the last 10 years. I don't know. I mean, the last thing I remember seeing her in was Young Justice, but I'm not going to go back and start tracing her history after that.
0: That was a good series. This should reprint Young Justice. So far, my thoughts on this 80-page anthology was I really want to reread Glory and I really want to reread Young Justice. Not, I really want to read the adventures of these characters as written by these people from the DC offices. And again, mostly it's not because of the people. It's because editorial has given them such odd jobs. I don't know if they chose those titles. If everybody chose that weird structure of a teaser trailer to a series that doesn't exist and by all rights probably wouldn't ever
1: exist. In fact, this is something that we know for certain because in the afterword to the issue, Michael McMillan, who did the uh, Superman Men in Black story in this issue, says, and I quote, hopefully I will one day get to continue Clark's fateful run-in with the Joker. So this is not a teaser trailer for stuff that's coming down the line. Yeah. Which is sad because... The next story in this collection was the only one that I really, really liked. Catwoman, the Amazonian Job. It's by Emma Beebe and Min Kyu Jung. This was the only one where I got to the end of the last page and I was like, no, give me more. No, where's the rest? Because it's brilliant. Wonder Woman hires Catwoman to steal a dangerous weapon. I love that setup. I don't think I've ever seen those two characters interact. And I think it's fantastic, you know, the whole idea of she is this thief and Wonder Woman goes to her because she needs help getting some kind of weapon that she needs stealth and cunning for and not raw strength.
0: It's interesting because Ming-Kyu Zhang, it's the most traditional DC-looking book out of the whole bunch, I would say. Yeah. It's very much of
1: the post-School of Jim Lee sort of thing, which is not bad. Catwoman is wearing sort of this bodysuit. It is a regression on the one hand, but it is also... I like the idea of these characters working together. I like the premise.
0: The poses I can do without.
1: Uh, well... It's listen. it's like
0: butt poses all over the place. Then, yeah. That, those pages.
1: Yeah. We were talking about normalizing last time, right? This is... It's like, what are you going to do?
0: Uh, speaking of Superman, The Man in Black, written by Michael McMillan and drawn by Juan Ferreira. No, hang on.
1: Juan Ferreira, I think he is known for... Oh, my God... Tom, he did Rex Mundy. Oh, my God. That's the thing that you like.
0: You should know that.
1: Tom, he did Colder.
0: Oh, right. right. Colder looked great. There you go. Colder was a super creepy series. Yeah. Yeah. We reviewed that in like episode four or five or something.
1: Talent? Yes. New? Uh, What did you make of the Superman story?
0: Uh, It's a Superman story. It has the three Jokers. Yeah. I assume so. And there's a robot monster. The whole man in black angle isn't really as played up as they hinted to be in the first couple no. of pages. What the hell is Enric Cole? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Pass. It looks good. He can do superheroes as well as uh, horse stuff. Even though I'd say his Superman is Superman smiling the page before last. It's super creepy.
1: It is. It really is.
0: When I read it, I'm like, "Oh, is he meant to be taken over by
1: the support <laughs> as well?" <laughs> that would have actually been a good plan.
0: Yeah, the dude is a horror artist, I guess. Uh, he can't,
1: he can't just let it go. The book ends with Harley Quinn in her underwear, where it says Tuesday on the back. Good Morning Gotham by Joel Jones and Yeah, Motsi. that new
0: talent, Joel Jones. Yep. What was it, Lady Killer? Right. Yeah. You loved Lady Killer. I like
1: Lady Killer. I didn't love it. I I loved the first issue. Afterwards, it was sort of like, eh.
0: again, Joel Jones, not a new talent. She was a new talent four years ago, maybe.
1: Well, let me ask you this: if we assume that what they actually meant to say, which you know, it would be DC, so it would be characteristic of them to have poor communication. If we're operating on the assumption that these are all writers and artists who are coming into DC now as part of the Rebirth Initiative and they will either be given new books or they will be assigned to new titles or or whatever, right? What conclusion do you draw? Like, is that a good thing, a bad thing? Is there anyone I, ha- I draw that you no wanna...
0: conclusion because the setup is so poor as an introduction to these talents that I just... I can't draw any conclusion. I know some of these people are capable of more than that. Simply on the basis that I've read stuff they did before. I know Emma BB can do more. I know Joelle Jones can do more. I would have been more excited if DC simply announced it. Like, because we've talked, one of the problems with Rebirth was that it was all, like, not just old people, but old DC people.
1: Yeah, musical wouldn't, chairs.
0: Yeah, wouldn't it be more exciting if alongside all these olds you'd had, Emma Beebe and Joel Jones, who are proven talent for other companies and other things, but are still fresh enough and coming for DC. you can say, you know, the writer of the hit Judge Dredd off the writer of the well-received Eisner-nominated miniseries Later Killer*. It would have been a lot more exciting than simply just... When we reviewed, what was the thing that DC had when they did the transition? That stupid crossover where they were all on
1: Alien Cities? Convergence, Convergence.
0: I was saying, I like the talent, I like the characters, but the setup of the actual storytelling is so limiting that even the greatest talent in the world, even if you had 1980s Ellen Moore writing a script that's being drawn by 1960s Jack Kirby and painted by Dave Stewart and Lot of Coffee, you can't do anything good with it. You can just do okay-ish. And the best of this anthology, like you said, the Emma Beebe story, it's okay-ish.
1: Yeah. That's actually really accurate in that sense because there's nothing that you can extract from this, either a promise of something or, oh man, it's just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. It's not like, these are teasers for series that are not coming out. We don't know if these writers and artists are doing anything at DC. We don't know if these story beats are ever going to come back in any meaningful way. We don't know what this workshop, was there a guarantee that they would work at DC or is just, hi. I'm here, here is my thing. What is that? Screw it. Moving on. Yeah, from DC to Marvel? Yes. Let's talk about Ghost Rider number 1 by Felipe Smith, art by Danilo S. Beirut, and also there is a backup story by Smith and original series artist Trad Moore.
0: Now, this is the sequel series to all new Ghost Rider. So naturally, instead of calling it all new Ghost Rider volume two, to make it easy and comprehensible for future readers and stuff like comicsology, they call it Ghost Rider. So this will be Ghost Rider volume seven or eight by now, but it's a sequel to a different volume and a different character who just shares the same name because Marvel doesn't want people to read its stuff apparently. Mm-hmm. They make it appear as if they want you to read their stuff, but they don't. They, they really don't. don't. It's just an exercise in confusing people. I'm a Marvel reader, and I'm confused.
1: Oh my god, Tom!
0: Carry on, Sean. The story thus far. All right.
1: Okay. So let's start with the reminiscence that we've reviewed Ghost Rider in the past. We reviewed the entire run of Treadmore's All New the Ghost whole Rider,
0: twelve issues, or was it even eleven?
1: No, it was 12. I think I enjoyed it more than you did.
0: Yeah, I I was turned off by the second half, which just went nowhere as far as I'm concerned.
1: That's fair. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I enjoyed the introduction of the character. I enjoyed everything that went on over there. And now it's back for another run with the same creative... T- well, the same writer, I should say. The creator, yeah. Philippa Smith created that character. So, there are positive aspects to this issue and negative aspects. The positive aspects are first of all I appreciate that Smith is still aware of the fact that the emotional heart of this series is the relationship between Robbie and Gabe.
0: In case you're a new reader by the way, Robbie
1: is the new ghostwriter and
0: Gabe is his young brother
1: who's suffering from uh, some kind of autism and is wheelchair bound again. He he used to be on crutches by the end of the first series but maybe dr doom reset that i don't know what the deal is with (laughs) dr doom is a bastard that's the sort of thing he would do right oh look there's a kid on crutches let me send him back to a wheelchair but in any event so this is something that other people who use robbie reyes don't always understand that it really is about him and his brother that's what readers get invested in But unfortunately, you know, we start out with this cute scene and then immediately we have a goddamn guest star jammed in. Two of them. Two of them. You know what? Well, no. I'm talking about like the first introduction here. Look, I like Amadeus Cho. In theory, I like him as the Hulk, too, even though I quit the Totally Awesome Hulk relatively early on because I just didn't have the patience for it. I
0: I just don't like him as a Hulk. He was a guest star on Moon Girl, and he was annoying. He's a guest star here, and he's annoying. And I read the Incredible Hercules run by uh, Van Lente and Greg Bach, and I've talked it up several times here. He was a great character there, For some reason, as a Hulk, he just doesn't work.
1: Interesting question. And it
0: shouldn't be a problem because this comic is not called the Hulk. It's called the Ghost Rider. But who gets more pages?
1: Oh, well, see, this is what I was going to get into. So the problem here is... Okay, it seems pretty clear to me that Smith is trying to tie Ghost Rider into the larger Marvel Universe. And I have to spoil the ending on this for it to make sense. Uh, We have the introduction of Amadeus Cho, who is off doing Tom, you could cut his entire subplot out of this issue and would notice nothing different. They don't intersect in any way. He is busy dealing with this monster thing.
0: Science stuff, and then there's a monster, and by the next issue, the monster is probably going to fight Ghost Rider.
1: Whatever. And then at the end of the issue, we get Wolverine and her sister Gabby. Yeah. So, I have a problem here on two levels. First of all, if you start entangling Ghost Rider in the Marvel Universe, you have to make a case for these characters having a reason to be in each other's worlds, right? There was a very long period of time where Daredevil was off in his own corner of Hell's Kitchen and didn't even talk to other heroes. And that was because you didn't have a whole lot of other characters who could fit the tone of those stories. The Hulk here doesn't really connect to anything that was thematically, or in terms of plot, relevant to what was happening in the previous
0: It looks like, in theory, what Philippa Smith really wanted to write was a team book about characters who are all, not only second generation, but second generations who are not wanted by the originators as their continuations. Sure. Because Amadeus was not meant to be the new Hulk, and X-23, Wolverine specifically didn't want her to be the new Wolverine, and the original Ghost Rider certainly didn't want this kid to carry on a variation of his curse. So there is something interesting there in theory, but the theory is so off the mark within the actual story execution...
1: It's an invented theory. None of this exists in the issue. And to take that even a step further, these are all characters who have adopted legacies that are not theirs. Ghost Rider in this issue is not the spirit of vengeance that possessed Johnny Blaze. They're different entities. Amadeus Cho has nothing to do with Bruce Banner, except for the fact that he is now the Hulk through a different set of circumstances. X-23 chose the name Wolverine, but she was not made Wolverine by Logan. So these things do connect these characters, but it has nothing to do with the plot of the issue. And another part of it is also a big part of the reason that I liked the first run was because when you look at Robbie Reyes' character, the whole reason that he's Ghost Rider in the first place is because he was participating in illegal races to save up money so he could get him and his brother out of this dangerous neighborhood they're living in. There's an element of, I don't want to say realism because that's not what it is, but sort of very ground level, street level. It's like,
0: like 1980s, let's say of the
1: YMCA race. Something like that, except it draws attention to the idea that they live in a town where gang warfare is so frequent that in one of the very first issues, Gabe hears what he thinks are fireworks, right? And they're gunshots. And Robbie is just sort of like holding him close and saying, don't go outside when you hear fireworks. There's an element of like, real danger for these characters that completely disintegrates if you remind people that this story is happening in the Marvel Universe and the Hulk is going to show up any minute. It sabotages itself in some way.
0: The art's nice in both stories. Danilo S. Beirut as When you need to fill up, Treadmore shoes, these are big shoes to fill and he's not up to that yet but it's you know it's bold it's bright it's it is very superheroic. they told him you know work for the marvel universe style and he does that but it's well told and there is actual storytelling going on here it's it's not just a collection of splash pages and the racing the lone racing chasing works and Treadmore gets like eight pages to do his thing which is very Treadmore-ish and I like Treadmore
1: so many abs So many abs, Tom. It's weird
0: because it's an interesting idea of a villain like Robbie's own version of Catwoman who has like this love-hate relationship with him. Yeah. But she calls him skinny and when he takes off his
1: shirt, he is not a skinny dude. No, he isn't. He's all jacked up. He might be skinny compared to her because she has like abs all the way up to her forehead. So it's like she's a bodybuilder by trade. So maybe that was part of the joke. I, I could get that.
0: The backup strip is more interesting simply because it's an actual Ghost Rider story, right? It's about him.
1: Yeah, and that's why, like, it's rare for me that this happens. But, you know, having come to the end of the issue and having talked about it with you, I don't know if I'm sticking around. I want to. I'm not. I know. I want to because I enjoy this character. I enjoy the story. I enjoy Smith's storytelling. I don't want Ghost Rider to start running around. And having Marvel adventures and getting roped into, I don't know, Monsters Unleashed, Death of X, or whatever the hell is coming next. I don't want any of that.
0: G versus all new G, Ghost no, Riders no, Unleashed, no. and the Monsters Universe He's going to be part of the Champions, no. and the new <sighs> Avengers, and Generation X in the no. same time.
1: <laughs> no! Yep. No! No!
0: And the Defenders. He's going to be a Daredevil character. Well,
1: then I'm not sticking around for that. If this ends up being a book in which you have to put up with the presence of the occasional guest star, then fine. If this is the beginning of a road where they're trying to just turn Robbie Reyes into just another character of the Marvel Universe, I don't want it. I just don't.
0: Okay, so that was Ghost Rider. And after Marvel and DC, we'll finish with Dark Horse and something very rare for us. We're going to talk about Yusaji Ujimbo, number 159. <laughs> we usually talk about number ones. And a few weeks ago, when we talked about Giant Day's Holiday Special, we were like, should we really talk about something that's in the middle of a series? And now we're like... <laughs>
1: 159. And
0: not even the first volume. This is the second volume of Yusagi Ujimbo. If you count the previous pre-Dark Horse series, I think it's already past 200.
1: Jeebus. This is
0: like 40 years of Yusagi Ujimbo. And we picked that simply because I've recently got into old Yusagi Ujimbo. I'm reading it via the Dark Horse Classics trades. And I we should give some series that are ongoing a shot... Especially if, like, this issue, it's supposed to be a one-shot story. So, I'm a Yusagi Ujimbo fan. Sean, you've never read Usagi Ujinbo, right. right?
1: This was my first issue. And what are your thoughts? Okay. Whew. Well, before we get into my thoughts, maybe you could say a few things about the series in general.
0: Okay, now, the general plot of the story, which has been carried on, as far as I know... For, for 30 years plus now... Yusagi Ojimbo is a
1: samurai in a... Anthropomorphized rabbit.
0: Funny animal version of Japan. He was a samurai... a uh, Just and decent and honorable warrior... But his lord was killed and now he's a ronin... You know, a masterless samurai. And he wanders the earth... And because he's the hero of the series... Wherever he goes, trouble follows. Usually somebody's trying to kidnap someone and he gets mixed in. Or some bounty hunter thinks he's a criminal and tries to kill him. And some ninja clans are after him. It's the walking the earth scenario where you fall into a new adventure town in every single issue. It is that, that's true. And in this issue, it's very much a Yusagi Ujimbo story. He just walks around in the roads. And he happens to chance upon a young girl whose father was killed by a bunch of evil samurai and he teams up with an old cop he used to know. And they investigate the how and the whys of why was this girl kidnapped and why was her father murdered.
1: And that's about it. As an introduction to Usagi Ujimbo, I would say that this does the job only in the sense that... He doesn't seem particularly hard to grasp. This isn't a complex character, right? We're talking about someone who's a heroic protagonist, protects this girl, but he doesn't especially bond with her. It's it's not Lone Wolf and Cub, right? No, she's not going to be... She's not his sidekick, and he's not going to take care of her. He's just going to take her to the investigation and see, like, what is the source of this wrongdoing. It's more like The Fugitive than
0: Lone Wolf and Cub.
1: Maybe something like that, but I, I do have a problem with the fact that this is... On the cover, it says very clearly part one of one. But yeah, it but on it's not. Out.
0: It feels like an introduction to something bigger, right?
1: Having resolved the immediate issue of defeating the people who killed this girl's father, we find out that there's some anonymous mastermind working everything out. And as Usagi is sitting with the inspector, they're sort of, well, let's play some Go. And he says, okay, so should we worry about this benefactor? Oh, well, yes, the anonymous benefactor. He must be found. The end. Now, obviously, I'm guessing that in the following episode, Sakai is going to get into that. I I
0: guess not immediately following because Sakai is nothing if not playing the long game. So he can introduce a mystery in one issue and then return to it like, you know, a year later. Which is one of the things I lack about reading Yusagi Ujimbo in trades. But I read it in trades, not in single issues most of the time.
1: I will say this much. It's unfair to evaluate this issue the way we would any other number one, because clearly this isn't necessarily designed as a jumping on point for anything.
0: But I think it's important to mention, this is issue 159. It's not even the first volume. This is not a reboot or a retread. This is still carries all the years of continuity. And we do have some old characters here and we do have some old settings here, but you got it, right? You got every single thing that happened. You there wasn't
1: not, much to get, though.
0: The fact that you could get into it, and the fact that, yes, there is a setup for a future story, but there is... Stuff happened, right? We actually got a mystery, and a chase scene, and another fight scene, and a small investigation piece, and an argument, and stuff happened. Now, for me, this is not the best of Usagi Ujimbo, and I I expected more, because usually when Sakai does one-shots... He does something a bit more contemplative or strange. He has some wonderful magic realism story where... One of my favorite stories from Sakai that I've read a few years ago... Was a story in which Yusagi himself appeared for only like two pages. It was about a woman whose husband was killed by bandits. And it's just... She buried him and then we just saw his... You know, everything from the point of view of the grave. And towards the end of the story as the brigands just... You know, they pass through the same spot again... And they tried to rob another guy and it's Yusage and he kills them. He doesn't even know, you know, he doesn't even know that he fixed some grand injustice and she comes in like a few pages later. And for some reason I'm feeling calmer and I can't tell you why. That's one of the way uh, Sakai does great one and done stories. This is not one of those. It's more like a setup issues and as setups go. I think it's fine. I think it's good. Not one of his best, but I would agree that I expected
1: more. The challenge here for new readers is that, yes, on the one hand, this issue, even 159 issues in, is very accessible. But the reason it's very accessible is because when you map it out, it feels super, super, super generic. The fact that he's a rabbit doesn't have any effect on the story. It's not like he acts at any point like a rabbit. It's not like any animal character or animal hybrid in this story acts according to what they look like. Usagi himself is completely simplistic as a character. I mean, this is basically someone who does the right thing, no matter what the right thing is. And, you know, these people burst into a tavern and they're saying, give us the girl. He's not going to give you the girl. He's going to fight. Compare him to someone like Afro Samurai. Ugh, I hate Afro Samurai, Sean. Look, you don't have to like Afro Samurai, though, to recognize that this is a character who has... More complex motivations and more complex characterization. No,
0: I, I disagree, but again, I'm looking at the whole of Yusagi Ojinbo and you're just looking at this
1: one issue. Sure, but that's what this one issue is. Yeah, yeah has. I'm
0: saying I can't, I'm looking at it from a different angle. The interesting thing for me about Yusagi Ojinbo is that he, he, like you said, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. He likes kids. He loves justice, but he is duty bound to the rules of his society, which do not, as the author constantly mentioned, align with ours.
1: But that distinction is academic in this story. Yeah,
0: not not in this story. That's not a plus that I can point out in issue 159 specifically. I really like the idea that, you know, the evil samurai are appalled by the idea that this cop will just walk in and try to arrest their leader. Like, yes, he knows that we're guilty and we know that we're guilty and we know that he knows, but we're noble samurai and he's just a cop. He's a civilian cop. And it's an interesting idea that he has technically the authority of the shogun, you know, the, the the military leader, but he's not of noble blood. He's just a civilian, and and Usagi is a ronin. So none of them has any. They have all the civilian authority, but they don't have like the natural heavenly authority that the, the samurai have. And I love the scene where you know they break in and like we have the authority, and oh no, you don't. You're just peasants. You know, walk away.
1: And if that had led to some kind of meaningful discussion in the issue, I would have...
0: Well, it, it led to a fist fight, and then a sword fight.
1: Yeah, and a sword fight that, of course, the good guys win. Let me put it this way. From the perspective of someone who doesn't read it, this issue would not convince me to start. From the perspective of someone who is reading it, I think, you know, you would just be inclined to go to the next issue, right?
0: Yeah, but uh, like you, I think if this was my first issue, it's not bad. But it's not the greatest of Sakai's works. And I chose that because, honestly, I expected it to t- slightly turn you in my favor. <laughs> like, oh, Sean, you would love this. and uh, I should have waited. I guess. <laughs> Maybe we should have done the Space Usagi thing. Oh, well, see, that would have... He, been he had of- a spin-off series where, he, where there was a version in space.
1: But see, that would at least be something where... It's taking the concept in a different direction. If Sakai is capable of crafting interesting stories and interesting characterization without the need for gimmickry, that does not appear to be the case here. Now again, issue 159 is kind of a problematic place to make that judgment, but that's what we've got.
0: If they didn't want you, the new reader, to make the judgment, they wouldn't say part one of one and call it in the solicitation a one-part story. Exactly. So, I'm not
1: coming back for more...
0: I think it's good. Okay. It's not as good as Sakai can be.
1: Okay, that's fair. Moving on to our main course, uh, we will be discussing Empress, a seven-issue mini series by Mark Miller and Stuart Eminen. Inking by
0: Wade Von Graubadger, the man with the greatest name ever. Ooh,
1: there you go. Through the icon imprint of Marvel.
0: It lives... I bet you
1: forgot about it. I bet
0: you all thought Empress was a Mark Miller image project. It is not. It's an icon.
1: You're going to laugh, but I actually did think it was image.
0: <laughs> I don't. I knew it because I also thought. All oh, right, it's an image and then I looked at the at the solicit and I'm like, "Oh, no, no, no. Icon." For you know, Criminal has left icon and Jason Aaron's self-owned stuff is now an image. What the hell do icon exist for?
1: Bendis and Miller. So, okay. Longtime listeners will, of course, be aware of the fact that I do not think very highly of Mark Miller. I, however, selected this for review because it is important for me to occasionally try and keep an open mind and be fair and try to be objective and give creators another chance, especially considering that the last Miller book I read for any real length of time was Ultimates.
0: That's 15 years ago I know.
1: now. 15 years ago and I'm willing to say, you know, let's pop back in for a little bit and see what has happened.
0: And Sean, what has this lesson taught you about being open-minded? Well. Well,
1: let's get into it, shall we? The plot as it were. So, okay. We start with an establishing shot that declares that Earth 65 million years ago, was ruled by an alien race by this very cruel emperor known as Morax. The first scene that introduces Morax was not very encouraging for me in terms of giving Mark Miller another chance because he still writes like an overcaffeinated 8 8-year-old. Reporting your traitorous friend wasn't enough, you should have beaten him to death with your bare hands and fought others for the privilege. Okay, Mark, whatever. We get it. He's bad. He's an evil bad guy. Yeah, he is. is. So, Emporia, who is the series' protagonist, the titular Empress, is Morax's wife. She decides to flee her tyrannical husband with their children, Ain, Adam, and Puck, and her bodyguard, Dane.
0: And along the way, they recruit one of uh, his old war buddies, whose name I do not recall right now.
1: It's not important. I'm sure he has a name. I can't remember it either right now. He has a little robot friend. Ship! Ship is his little robot friend. So, here's the thing, Tom. Emporia decides to run away. Uh they have ship, who's this cute little teleporting droid? All well and good. Somewhat typically, and I'm I'm curious if you felt this way as well. This book reads like it's on fast forward. You remember in Spaceballs when they're like... And they're all just like going in fast forward through the entire plot of the movie?
0: Yeah, it's seven issues, but it feels more like a three-issue story.
1: After all of these years, Mark Miller still hasn't learned like pacing timing it's just like one long scream of "Ah!" for like an hour and a half
0: this is as close as a comic can get to an empty calorie (laughs) which is to say it's not harmful unlike many mark miller comics which are offensively bad
1: nobody got raped
0: this is not that this is just like as mainstream, explosion, shoot em up, chase scene monsters comic as you can get. Which, on its own, is an
1: improvement. That's damning with faint praise. Uh,
0: my standards are so low. And here's the thing even as just a chase em, shoot em up monster comic, it's not that good. Eminem is a great artist. Is a great artist for chasing an explosion. But the stuff that he gets to draw here, it feels so unchallenging to what he can do. Because he can do tons of stuff. He's not limited to a single mode. He can do extreme comedy action like Next Wave. He can do something very human and downbeat like Moving Pictures or a Russian Olive to Red King. Or he can do like good fight-em-up generic superhero comics like he did on X-Men. But here, this is so unchallenging. Miller is never giving him anything to draw beyond generic post-Star Wars space scenes. None of the monster designs are impressive. None of the ship design is memorable. You won't have your new Millennium Falcon that all the kids will want to play no, with. it's completely functional. And the basic plot, which you've talked about when this series was first announced, is interesting in theory, right? The idea that this woman who was not a partner in crime but well aware of how horrible her husband was just decides to let go and in theory that she has to deal with the fact that she was part of this giant murder machine
1: and that her eldest daughter is torn between staying with her father and going with her mother because on the one hand it's like you know if your your younger brother has to go through these trials it'll destroy him and she says well maybe he should toughen up like there's something there There's a kernel of a good idea there.
0: The Sopranos has a great, almost a full season worth of arc with Carmela thinking about leaving Tony and speaking with her own psychologist and dealing with the questions of like, well, if I leave him, should I take money? And the psychologist saying, no, because anything you take from him, aside from the kids, is going to be blood. You're already tainted. And she decides not to leave him simply because she can't let go of her own lifestyle. That's an interesting moral dilemma. And here it's like, there is no moral dilemma. She decides to leave him and nobody ever stops to say, wait, 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 were you a compatriot with a murderer for 20 years and now you decide to leave? For completely selfish reasons that he didn't care enough about me? Who cares if he didn't care about you? What about the hundreds of millions of... No, 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 hang on, hang on. on.
1: That's not her motivation. She says very clearly that the reason she wants to leave her husband, and again, this is Mark Millar failing to press the issue and really make it clear, but you know... In fairness to him, he does establish that Emporia's reason for leaving uh, Morax is to save her kids. She does not want them.
0: One of them is at least 15 and the other is like 17, 18.
1: Well, listen, better late than never. But here's the problem. I'm about to unravel this book, just unzip the whole thing and watch the organs fall on the floor, okay? And to do that, I have to spoil the ending, so I apologize to our listeners in advance. Here's the thing. This story is about a woman who takes her children and flees her... Potentially abusive husband who is an evil emperor who is oppressing everyone. It ends with her being cornered by him and she challenges him to a fight with the expectation being that he will kill her and immediately take the kids and, but at least the kids will live. Morax agrees to the fight. Emporia then curb stomps him because it turns out, Tom, it turns out. <laughs> that where Morax thought she was just a waitress when he first met her, she was, in fact, the greatest cage fighter in the galaxy. And she takes Morax down without breaking a sweat.
0: Now, three pages. Now, this is a dictator who, in his first introduction, the prisoners he was judging, were meant to choose between fighting him and fighting a super Tyrannosaurus Rex. And they said, no, 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 we'll fight the dinosaur instead. So he's bigger and scarier than a giant dinosaur, and she...
1: If she had the ability to kill him in two pages, why does this story exist? She doesn't love him.
0: Why didn't we see anything about her extreme fighting prowess?
1: It's bigger than that.
0: Everybody else fight. The bodyguard fought. Her daughter fought. Her son fought. she She's supposedly the main character. She was given nothing to do
1: for the sex. It's even bigger than that because she doesn't love Morax. She has no reason to go easy on him. And in fact, she doesn't even hesitate to kill him, right? Her first instinct was to run. You assume that when she's fleeing him, it's because she's afraid of him. But she's not because she could have killed him in 30 seconds. Why didn't she?
0: And because it's a stupid space civilization, you know, if
1: you kill the leader, you are the leader, apparently. The moment that he dies, his daughter ascends to the throne. She is now Empress. Another writer with two functioning brain cells, maybe three, would have been like, you know what? The Empress in the title is not Emporia. It's the daughter. She is the Empress, right?
0: And then she does something interesting.
1: She shows sort of like an inkling of exactly how much from her father she learned. But it's not dealt with. These are these heroes. It's like she just wiped out an entire army. Is that not a moment of concern? Is there a possibility that she will become like her father and rule the empire? No, because Mark Miller doesn't understand how to do that. So not only is this a Baron Munchausen story... Sort of like the Draco. Why is Azazel impregnating all of these human women with babies so they'll become teleporters and open a portal so he can come to Earth? Then how has he been impregnating these women? By coming to Earth. She had the capability to kill this guy in two pages because he had no idea. Look at how this was almost a brilliant twist. They say at the very beginning when he first met her, when he married her, he made it a condition that she would never speak of her past. He was operating on the assumption at the time that she was a waitress, even though she told him very clearly, my friend is sick, I'm filling in for her. So, there is foreshadowing and execution of that foreshadowing, but it's it ends up being a plot twist that completely unravels the plot.
0: And like I said, there is nothing there except the chase, right? And we never see any glimpse of... Why did she marry him from the first place? Was it because of fear? No, she says he
1: treated her well.
0: What about the drama of what she was involved with, what she gave a nod to, what she agreed to in silence? Well, she was a cage
1: fighter, Tom.
0: There's a difference between fighting in a gladiator game and being the wife of a murderous super dictator.
1: It's sort of a combination of all of these things that Miller failed to do. If she had been written as a morally ambiguous character, you could make the argument that, okay, she supported her husband, and then at some point she was just powerless because it doesn't seem like she has any authority, right? The only person she commands is her bodyguard. When the troops on the ship in the first issue corner her, they don't call her like, you know, Empress. Nobody's tempted to mutiny with her. She doesn't seem to command any kind of authority. And in fact, when he dies, they don't even consider that she could rule. The throne immediately passes to the daughter. So if that had been the focus, if the idea was that she really was this powerless person and her only function was to give Morax children, then I could say, okay, whatever her husband did, she clearly wasn't in a position to stop him, whether she approved of it or not. The problem is, she was a cage fighter! She could have literally killed him! She does literally kill him! She breaks his neck in two seconds! It's convenient for Miller as a writer because it doesn't require him to really get into her head, right?
0: Convenience is the name of the game here, right? Because the sidekick of the bodyguard... He has these powers which don't work until they do work. And it's like, he can talk to machines, but only old machines. And machines are old enough for him to control just when the plots needs them to be. Because if his power worked on every machine, he could have solved every single problem for the series. To
1: be fair, and again, like I am trying very hard to give Miller credit when it's due. The foreshadowing there is that the ship that he finally manages to control belongs to an alien species... That is notoriously cheap and whose cheapness has been mentioned throughout the entire series, right? The Quez. Their whole thing is they're super greedy and they're super cheap.
0: Well, we paid for all these soldiers, but we paid for the cheap sheep. And apparently, this guy that the whole of the galaxy is chasing is looking for, nobody has any information about any of these people. Like, one of them can talk to machines. You would think this would be an important information on a wanted poster. Whenever they go around the galaxy,
1: we don't get any sense of how the people on these alien worlds live. When I was talking about the plot feeling like it's on Fast Forward, that's what it is. Boom! The planet is made of a diamond. Boom! This planet is dead. Boom! We're stuck on this world. Since we've
0: talked about Omega Man earlier in our show, you remember the sense of pacing that Omega Man had with the nine-panel grid? And how it was important for them to show you slowly. They had six different worlds, right? The worlds of
1: the Citadel. Also, like, if you think about Descender, right? Descender does this really well where they define so clearly the different worlds and what each world is like and the culture and what they're going through.
0: Look at how the pages are built here. Most of the pages are divided into four panels, five tops, and of course, a lot of one-shots and double-spreads because it's Miller, right? That's
1: what it is, though. It's like you spend the entire comic being like, Hey, Tom, there's a teleporting droid! Oh, look, it's also with there! Shiny! Over there!
0: And, Sean, you know me, and the listeners certainly know that I like shallow, fun, explosionist stuff if it's done well. I read the humans and I was (laughs) bickling every single punch and drunken sex scene and drunken punch sex scene. And a whole issue which was basically just one long chase on a motorcycle with a giant rig. But you have to know how to do that. And Eamon knows how to do that. But for some reason, it just doesn't click here, right? Take any four random next wave pages.
1: They contain more excitement than the whole of this series. This is what happens when you have a writer who not only doesn't understand the concept of flow, but is often in such a rush to get to the sugar high moments, right? Again, like an over-caffeinated eight-year-old, they're in such a rush to get to the sort of peak moments of excitement and action and whatever, that you end up not just missing the connective tissue, that tissue doesn't even exist. Here's an action scene, here's another action scene, here's another action scene, here's another action scene. Here's a sex scene, here's another action scene, here's the death scene, the end. So you don't feel like any of these characters... I mean, okay, perfect example, right? The frustrating thing about Miller, the reason that it's more complicated to write him off than it would be for anybody else is because he does often have kernels of good ideas that he fails utterly, uh, just as an example of, like, the failure to develop characterization. In the beginning of the story, Ain, the, the oldest daughter, says that she wants to stay with her father, and when Emporia says, you know, he's going to make her brother, he's going to make Adam go through these horrible rituals, these horrible trials, Ain's response to that is, good, he could stand being toughened up a little bit. So she has sort of this antagonistic relationship with Adam. By the end of the series, she takes pride in Adam's inventiveness, like he builds a cannon out of scrap to escape the jail cell.
0: Again, people not thinking through things. They constantly lock MacGyver with all... Which they should know. He's the son of the most famous guy in the galaxy. They should know he's super technologically advanced guy, right? Yes,
1: that much is true. But the larger problem is... So presumably she has had a shift in perspective, right? Now she respects her brother as an inventor. She never brings it up. It never comes up that she was willing. She was saying, you know, he should go through these things and basically turn into a soldier. And now she sees his value and it's just sort of treated as, well, that's something that happened.
0: The big Miller flow, right? None. No follow through. He has this idea and you're singing like, oh, this sounds like an interesting idea. What are you going to do with it? Chasing and exploding. Like the Ultimates, it's a nice idea, right? A superhero team who's a variation on a classic superhero team, but they're also A, government stooges and B, super celebrities. And they're supposed to be constantly in the public knowledge and be overhyped by the media and play with it. But
1: no, they just... Ultimates had the advantage, and Ultimate X-Men as well, and uh, uh, also The Authority. These books had the advantage of following up creators who had clearer statements of purpose, right?
0: And also Brian Hitch. Well. Well, Ultimates had the adventures of being Brian Hitch. Kick-ass, you know. He says, let's do a series about an idiot in the real world who wants to be a superhero. And that's semi-interesting idea. But then, oh, I fell in love with this little ninja girl who can kill a room full of mafia hitmen. That's not realistic. That's not the real world. Or when the actual protagonist gets beat up, sent to hospital, and they
1: give him reinforced skeleton. You stopped doing the realistic world.
0: You've let go of your own idea?
1: Was it Nemesis where the guy kidnaps the president's kids and forces oh, yeah, the yeah. gay son to impregnate the sister and rigs her womb to explode if they try to abort it? Yeah. Jesus!
0: Garth Ennis is looking at that series and like, too far. David Levin finishes 20 issues of Crossed and like another grisly crime story with 20 murders and he looks at Nemesis and like, this is disgusting.
1: I so did not want this to turn into confirmation bias. I was
0: recommended this by a man whose opinion I highly appreciate. A very intelligent man, a doctor, a professor.
1: Tom, I cannot look at this issue and ignore any other writer I would take to task for doing this for the same reasons, you know? This isn't the thing where, like, I hate Mark Miller at the end. It's like, the reason that I hate Mark Miller is because he does shit like this. Where he doesn't even think about his plots for five seconds. And again, the sad thing, this is a step up. It is a step up. We were marveling over the fact that, like, oh my god, he managed to have an entire story with a female protagonist. And when the sex scene happens, she's actually consenting. She consents to sex. He's an adult woman with another adult man. And they do it from their own free will. This might actually be the first time he's done that. I'm not sure.
0: It's still not very believable. It's very generic romance. You know, we have to have a romance because we sold the script. It's going to be a movie. We got to have romance. Got to have the romance. And even though it's titled Empress, the actual lead guy is Dane for like six issues. Yeah,
1: she does nothing until until the plot is like, hey, by the way... I'm sitting here, Tom, 15 years later making the same complaints. It is the same thing. And you know what? Like, If we were to go back and reread the first six issues of Ultimate X-Men, I promise you that we would be saying the exact same thing. We'd be saying he doesn't stop for a second to consider the like the effect that the events have on these characters. There's no characterization. Logically, it doesn't make any sense. It's a Baron Munchausen thing where if you could have done that all along, there wouldn't be any story. So why didn't you? He doesn't think about these things at all. And so this just tells me, okay, so he doesn't have rape scenes anymore. That's progress. But that is not enough for me to be like, well, maybe I should reevaluate Mark Miller. No, he's still Mark Miller. Just with less rape.
0: You know what, Sean? We're in a bit of a pickle here because we reviewed four <laughs> different comics and the, the, the highest complaint we gave is... okay
1: No, no. I, I'll say this. I'll, okay.
0: So I want to try something different because we've talked about these comics already. Before we finish this episode, talk to me about one good thing you've read recently simply that we won't be like, it's a comic book podcast that hates comics. Talk to me about a good comic.
1: Okay, a good comic that I've read recently. I can do that very, very easily, Tom. First of all, let us not forget that very recently, Image put out the first book of Kill Six Billion Demons. That is Uh out there, and it is out there for people to read. Ryan North's first arc of Jughead was pretty good. Other really good books that I have read lately. (laughs) Hmm, what have you read lately that's pretty good?
0: Well, since we've talked about old British comics and doing stupid explosions, right? I recently reread the first two arcs of the ABC Warriors. There you go. And you know, it's stupid. And <laughs> pedmails, right? Writing science fiction robots, it's stupid in hell, but my god, it's fun. And you know, the pacing stuff happens every single page. Every single six pages, you have a climax and then and, and something big going on and you don't feel like you've wasted your time.
1: Here's something that I don't think we've ever mentioned. But I do want to draw attention to as something really, really good. There's a company called 5150 Comics. I don't know anything about them. But they have been releasing on Comixology, Tom, Why I Hate Saturn. Oh, that's great. In digital format. This is the famous Kyle Baker graphic novel, Why I Hate Saturn. they released so far two parts out of three. One of Baker's greatest, most hilarious, funniest graphic novels. I reread the first part a couple of days ago and I had a ball.
0: Oh, and since we've talking, I'll mention Sarah Gilden's uh, Rolling Blackouts. It's a graphic novel about her time accompanying journalists to the new Middle East following the Arab Spring and going throughout all of these countries and... Not only interviewing people, but sort of meditating on the idea of journalism in the twenty-first century. You know
1: what, Tom? I am instituting a new rule—a new smorgasbord rule: the dessert round. <laughs> Okay. If we have a really bad meal That consists of disgusting appetizers And a main course that just lets us down We are allowed To have a dessert round A little lightning round Where we talk about stuff that is actually good Even if we're not Because there's good up.
0: comic. There out there There are good
1: there's comics good. out there Yes, you are absolutely right
0: <sighs> So this was the smorgasbord
1: <laughs> With some good Some bad comic
0: and some good some comic. good
1: dessert at the very end
0: I was Tom Shapira.
1: And I'm Sean Adry. And
0: until next time.
1: Bon Appetit.